This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio, 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to the conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Your hosts today are myself, Anna Thompson, and my colleague, Rebecca Daly. Today, we are bringing into the studio some really special folks who are shaping not only the future of the city, but the future leaders of the city as educators. Both of our guests today are New Memphis Educators of Excellence, Danny Song and Kareth Griffin. Each of them serve as executive directors of their respective schools, which means they not only are responsible for the education of scholars, but also other educators. We thought it would be particularly insightful to discuss how they balance their leadership roles with the nuances that come with the education sector, from legislation to social and emotional health and care of everyone who walks through their doors each morning. Danny Song is the founder and executive director of Believe Memphis Academy, which was founded through the Building Excellent Schools Fellowship, a rigorous year-long comprehensive training program in urban charter school creation and leadership. He is the 2015 and 2017 recipient of the Sontag Prize in Urban Education and holds a BA in Journalism and an MA in Urban Education from Union University. Kareth Griffin is the Executive Director of University Middle School. She began a successful teaching career at her alma mater, Treadwell High School, and then transitioned to Douglas High School, where she served for 12 years and taught primarily 10th grade English in addition to choir, etymology, dual enrollment, and facing history and ourselves. In 2020, Kareth transitioned to University Middle School, where she now serves as the executive director. She continues her work as a fellow for Facing History and Ourselves and continues to provide civic engagement and social justice training for local faith-based organizations. She is an alumni of the New Memphis LDI program. Please join us in welcoming our guests to the studio. Welcome, Danny and Kareth. Um, we wanted to get started by having each of you share a little bit about yourself. So, Danny, we can start with you. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Anna and Rebecca. My name is Danny Song. I'm the founder and executive director of Believe Memphis Academy Charter School. I came into the work of education through um, joining the Memphis Teacher Residency in its inaugural class in 2009. Um, I've been a part of several schools here in Memphis. Um, I got into charter school work by being a founding teacher at Veritas College Prep. Um, I taught sixth grade math there and um, then also joined some work with the Achievement School District where I was a part, where I was the founding dean of students of the first charter Achievement School District school um, at Cornerstone Prep Lester campus. I spent a couple of years in Nashville. My wife and I welcomed um, our first three children during that time. And in 2016, had the opportunity to join Building Excellence Schools which is a national uh, national nonprofit that has a year-long fellowship to train individuals to found and lead high-quality charter schools in, um, in areas across our country. Um, I did that fellowship in the 2016-17 school year, came back to Memphis during that time, and opened Believe in 2018. Thanks, Danny. Um, I have a quick question. Could you explain what a charter school is and how that fits into the educational ecosystem here in Memphis? Absolutely. So first and foremost, a charter school is a public school, which means that we receive public funding um, that is uh, directed to us from the state as well as federal um, federal uh, monies that are that are given down to the state. It comes to each school um, through our student enrollment. And so what we think of when you think of charter schools, you can realize that the money that is allocated for each child follows the child. Um, that money that would go toward a traditional district school is then um, rerouted to a charter school for that child's education. Um, but what makes the charter school different is that it is privately managed, which means that we have our own board of directors. Believe Maps Academy is its own 501c3, um, a public nonprofit corporation here in the state of Tennessee. We have a board of directors made up of 11 board members who live and work and lead here in Memphis. 
Um, and then I am the executive director and I report to that board um, from all things on finances to governance to management. Um, and what primarily makes a charter school different from a traditional district school is that we're given three distinct autonomies. We have autonomy over our curriculum. We can choose as long as it fits within um, state laws. We can choose curricula that is most responsive to our students. The second autonomy we have is over our budget. We do submit and get our budget approved by our board of directors. The third autonomy we have is over hiring. Um, so there's not a central office that's assigning teachers our way. We hire um, and maintain all of our staff through our school campus. And with those three distinct autonomies, what I believe makes a charter school a unique environment is the additional accountability that we receive. And those accountability is twofold. It's first to the district, as we have a charter agreement with the district. We, you can think of charter schools as contracted schools, you know, as as um, as organizations often hire contractors to do different work. That's what charter schools are. We're contracted with the district. So we have accountability to meet um, the terms of our contract. But the second thing is we have accountability to our families. Um, traditional charter schools, now there's some other variations that have come out since then, but charter schools are schools where students and, and families are not zoned to. So every single family who attends our school is a family who chooses our school, which means that we are ultimately responsible to those families and we are accountable to them um, to ensure that we're providing the educational excellence that they expect from us. Danny, thank you so much for that clarification. Kareth, I am so excited to get to know you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your educational career? Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm Kareth Griffin, and I am currently the executive director at University Middle School, which is a public laboratory school um, that is located on the campus of the University of Memphis. I began my educational journey at my high school alma mater, um, Treadwell High School here in the city of Memphis. I graduated there in 1999 and Shortly after, I earned a bachelor's degree at the University of Memphis, and I returned to my alma mater to teach English. I taught there for five years, and after that, I was on the founding team of teachers who were instrumental in opening Frederick Douglass High School, actually reopening that school as it had been closed for 27 years um, and was a very strong beacon of light in that North Memphis community. And we wanted to see it back open. And so um, I was the founding 10th grade English teacher there. And I stayed there until I transitioned to university middle school. Um, I came here as the assistant director and I am now the executive director which is our name for principal. I um, have been, again, in education for a very long time, and I did not um, matriculate through any of some of the more common um, teacher education programs or leadership education programs. For me, it was kind of trial by fire, and it's been a, a really fun journey, and I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much, Kareth. Um, could you explain a little bit how the university schools or the campus schools are affiliated with the University of Memphis? Absolutely. So we are a Memphis Shelby County school, um, but we are, as um, Danny mentioned, contracted with the district as a laboratory school. And so University of Memphis, since its inception as a Tennessee normal school, has always had um K-12 education with the elementary school. And in 2019, the middle school opened five years ago um, as an extension of what most people know as campus school. And so campus school is 100, over 100 years old. Um, and our school is five years old and we have newly opened the high school, um, which currently houses ninth and 10th grade students. And so we are operated by the University of Memphis, but we are a public Shelby County school. Interesting. Okay, I feel like I've already learned so much from each of you. So thank you so much. Um, something that struck me as unique with both you, Kareth, and Danny is that you've both been kind of trailblazers. Like, so Danny, you were in the inaugural um, Memphis teacher residency class in 2009. Kareth, you were um, the founding teacher um, at Douglas High, right? And then, um, yeah, and then Danny, you founded Believe Memphis Academy. It just feels like y'all are kind of blazing a trail for what Memphis hopes to expect from our education systems. Can, um, can you chat a little bit about what that experience has been like for each of you? We can start with you, Kareth. 
Absolutely. Um, I believe wholeheartedly in public education, and I've always also believed in options for parents and families. And I think that it's important to um, not place students and or teachers in what I would consider cookie cutter situations where they have to do these things a certain way every single time. Um, When I went to Douglas, it was reopening after having been closed for 27 years. And it was an amazing opportunity to be a part of the groundwork for an amazing community within the city of Memphis, um, where there needed to be a restoration of hope. Um, The school had always served as a beacon of light in the community. And with the school being closed for so long, we really enjoyed the opportunity to um, rebuild and revitalize that community that had been dormant for quite a while. Coming to the University of Memphis, I was not here in the founding year, um, but I did come in the school's second year. And if you know anything about education, um, any school that's under five years is still considered a new school. <laughs> and I've been at the helm since the school's second year. And so I still feel as if we are doing something new um, here in the city. We are championing project-based learning and figuring out a way to do innovative education um, to demonstrate to stakeholders that you can do education in a way that students are benefiting. They are actually enjoying it. Teachers um, have autonomies and freedoms. We hire people who we trust to do the work. And as Danny stated about his schools, we also have autonomies over curriculum um, and over hiring. And so that's an, uh, an advantage that we have And we fully capitalize on it and making sure that our students are being provided the best education possible. What about you, Danny? What's it what's it mean to you to be a trailblazer here in Memphis education? Another word for trailblazer is glutton for punishment. So I think (laughs) that um, we can definitely understand, um, I think, the um, the challenges that come with that. But I think here's here's the reality. Um, I know there's been a lot of change for anybody who's keeping you being tabs on Memphis education um, for the last decade and the last two decades. You know, the charter schools first came to the state of Tennessee in 2002, and Memphis was the first city that had charter schools. Um, And since then, we've seen a lot of iterations and innovations. But I think the reality that Kareth and I are both reckoning with is that our education system has to evolve, where status quo is not uh, status quo is just not an option, especially when you're working with students who have historically been marginalized and disenfranchised by the system at large, which is the majority of students that I've had the opportunity, pleasure, and honor of working with since my time here at Memphis. Um, I do think there's some personal background and personal story as to why that's, this work um, appealed to me. For me, it goes back to what brought my family to this country. Um, my dad was a first-generation college graduate from his family. And, you know, my, my parents um, and I are from South Korea. I was born in South Korea. And we came to this country for my dad to continue his education. Um, he ultimately ended up earning his PhD in chemical engineering at Northwestern University. And that's what really changed my family's whole trajectory from going from living in student dormitories, student provided housing, um, to, uh, and receiving food stamps to get our groceries to building a middle class lifestyle by the time we, um, by the time I entered middle school. And this happened within this single generation for my family because of my dad's degree. I made, there's a lot of different connections that I can make there, but that is the primary factor that I grew up understanding is that education provided an opportunity for my dad, not only to change his life, but the life of the future generations of his family. And so for me, I think it came down to I I had the opportunity growing up to live in three different countries, South Korea, America, as well as Canada. I went through the public education system all of my K-12 career. And so I finally ended up in Jackson, Tennessee when I was in high school. My dad had a job change that brought him to the Maytag plant that was in Jackson. And so um, I attended a large public high school there. And that high school had two tracks. It had the college preparatory track and the vocational track. And for me, being having the opportunity to go through the college preparatory track, I was exposed to honors classes, AP classes. I was exposed to college preparatory classes where many of my classmates who many of my schoolmates who were in the vocational prep track didn't have access to those types of opportunities. And I think that's the first time that I really started 
revealing, exposing the gaps in our public education system that it really isn't made equitable for all students to access their full potential and their opportunities. Um, I went out to college and then I, I heard about this program called the Memphis Teacher Residency. And for me, my background isn't in education. I was a journalism major. But like I said, my own story and my family's history um, put this real, put this passion inside of me that educate on what education can do for students, for families, for communities. And when MTR presented the opportunity to be a part of a work that helps make more equitable our system, um, it's, not, it's an opportunity that I couldn't say no to. And I think it's that same drive that ultimately led me to um, being on the founding team of Believe is continuously trying to push forward um, the work that started, quite frankly, long before me and long before us in this generation toward equity and access and equality in this country. Um, and I think education's always been at the heart, been at the heart of that fight. Um, and so I count myself lucky and I count myself really fortunate to be able to be a part of that movement. And I think the work as an educator here in Memphis gives us direct access to be able to do that. Um, so thank you so much for sharing, Danny, about your journey and what brought you to education kind of in the first place or initially. Um, I'm curious what motivates you to stay in education. There's a level of stewardship that I think um, overarches my actions and beliefs in my whole life. Um, I am a person of faith and I am a person who believes that the things that we are given um, we are given to be stewards of and not just to hold for ourselves. Um, so I was given incredible privileges in my life. I was given the privilege of my dad um, and my mom being both college educated parents. I was given the privilege of being an immigrant in this country. I was given the privilege of education. And I think I hold with the my overarching faith that I am a steward of those things. And my responsibility is to maximize the impact that I can have with the things that I've been given. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, uh, this is my 15th year in education since joining the MTR. And a problem I keep encountering is that the things that I um, am asked to, the, the, the gifts that I'm being given to steward is increasing. One of those gifts that I've received over the last 15 years is direct access to the community, family, children that I've gotten to work with. And it's that group that I feel like I owe so much because they've taught me so much. Um, quite frankly, as an Asian American immigrant, I've always wrestled with racial identity um, and, and my own development of what is my place in this world? What is my place in this country? Um, what is my place in society? You know, as, as many people of color can attest to, as all people of color in this country can attest to, there's never a moment in my day where I'm not conscientious of my race and that that doesn't affect the way that I interact with the world. But um, ever since my childhood, especially in going to schools um, that were largely segregated um, by race, I found myself in majority white spaces. And Memphis was the first time that I was really exposed to predominantly children of color and communities of color. And the gift that that's given me um, to negotiate my own identity and to have permission to do that is something that my students taught me. Um, I watched my students at Booker T. Washington when I was first teaching there um, be proud of where they're from and their identity and their cultural heritage in a way that I wasn't exposed to prior to. Um, and that really sparked a journey of my own questioning and research and studying and learning um, that, quite frankly, like I, I feel like I owe my students and my families that have given me incredible hospitality of being an educator here in Memphis a great deal of debt and gratitude. Um, and so in some ways, it's just it's trying to pay pay that forward and pay that back. Um, in other ways, it's it's just it is also deeply fulfilling work. Um, it's work that is very difficult and challenging, but also gives an immense amount of pride, um, gratification, and joy um, when I really get to interact with the colleagues that I get to interact with, um, interact with the children, the families, and the community I get to interact with. And there's a real humbling aspect. Um, when I get to meet with individuals specifically who've been doing this a lot longer than me um, and learning learning from them. So, Kareth, um, can I would ask the same question of you. Um, what initially drew you to a career in education and then also what motivates you to stay in education? Danny, I feel like we are 
long lost brothers and sisters. Um, I also grew up in a place where I had to reckon with my own identity. Um, I grew up without my biological mother. Um, and that caused a lot of trauma for me as a child. And I found safety at school. Um, I went to a school that was not considered one of the best schools in Memphis. And I remember very distinctly when I um, was preparing for high school graduation, um, I was so excited and I was telling some people, you know, I'm graduating June the 1st, 1999. And they were asking questions about my experience. And I said, oh, yeah, my GPA is this. And someone told me, well, if you had gone to Germantown or Collierville, you wouldn't have the GPA that you have. And I think it was that moment that was defining for me. Um, And I stopped and started to compare and look at the difference between the education that I received at Treadwell High School and the education that family members or friends and church members um, received at suburban high schools. I looked at the quality of the buildings. I looked at um, the quality of the instruction that they were given. I looked at the access that they had. I believed at that time my high school may have offered one dual enrollment course. Um, I think that I was at church and in family with others who were taking three and four AP classes and dual enrollment classes, and they seemed to just have so much more access. And it was at that moment that I decided, you know what, I've got to come back here and change this. And so I remember graduating from high school, walking across the stage inside of my high school auditorium. And when I shook my principal's hand, I said, I'll be back in four years to teach. And when I went to college, um, it actually took me five years. And that was another moment when I realized that I didn't learn as much as I thought I had learned. Um, And because it took me five years to graduate, when I did, I went back to that principal and I said, hey, I'm ready to come back and I want to make a change. Um, And that's what sparked my interest because I had always decided I was going into law um, up until those moments as a high school senior where I just really saw the difference um, in the educational landscape in Memphis. And I certainly wouldn't have phrased it that way at the time, but I know that that is what I was learning. I stay in it similarly to Danny because of my faith. Um, If I can help somebody along the way, then my living won't be in vain. Um, I believe that I am called to do this difficult and challenging work, and it is simultaneously the most amazing thing I have ever gotten an opportunity to do. I'm working with students who don't have access to things. I'm working with students who have all the access to things and seeing them in a space where they can work together and learn from each other and realize that they have more similarities than differences has been immensely rewarding. I can't imagine doing anything else with my life um, on those days when I'm frustrated and when I've had lots of challenges that don't seem to have an answer. I stop and think, what else could I possibly do? And I have never been able to think of anything that I would want to do other than impact children, um, impact the educational landscape, impact um, the city of Memphis as a whole, because I love the city and I want to see it be the best that it can be. Um, I believe that there are some unique opportunities here. And I believe that if we all have this mindset that we can, then we will eventually will. I love the fact um, that, you know, my time spent at Douglas and my time spent at Treadwell were also very, very important to who I am as an educational leader because I was a teacher in the classroom in those spaces. And I have an understanding now that I wish I had then when I was in those spaces. Um, But it's, it's, I believe my true calling, and I hate to say that and sound like it's a cliche, but I just don't think I could do anything else. It's it's what I was meant to do. Memphis is lucky to have both of you. Your passion and compassion and drive reflect so many qualities of not only what our young scholars need, but what they deserve. But uh, I want to touch on the fact that you as executive directors are not just leading young scholars. You are leading leaders. You are leading the educators in the classroom as well. What 
sort of qualities does it take to be able to effectively lead and support this group of educators as well as your scholars? Kareth, would you like to kick us off? I think it starts with passion. I think, and you know, I'm a I'm a touchy feely type person, but it, it starts with a passion. Um, and that's the thing that will drive you to get up every single day because if you watch the news, if you pay attention to even social media, teachers by and large, educators are tired, they are exhausted, um, they feel severely overworked, they feel underappreciated, undervalued, underpaid. And it takes serious passion to get up day after day and to come in and to consistently think of ways to motivate teachers. Um, in my building, my number one priority um, when I when I applied for this job and the last I had to go through four rounds of three rounds of interviews. And in the last round, um, the person who's now my boss asked me, Kareth, what is your goal? for this school if you're given this role. And I said, well, it's very simple. I have two and they won't ever change. Um, Number one, I want students to want to come to school and equally as important. Number two, I want teachers to want to come to work. And I come to school every day with that in mind. What can I do today that will make my teachers want to come to work? I genuinely believe that if teachers want to be here and that if students want to be here, the learning that we talk about and strive to accomplish will take place. Um, That doesn't mean that it'll be easy, but I believe that it will happen. And so I start with treating my teachers like the professionals that they are and that they deserve um, the respect that they deserve, um, the autonomy within their classroom that they deserve, the support that they deserve. And I think Every day it's a challenge because I'm I constantly find myself having to justify why did you make this decision or in a lot of cases why didn't you make this decision for the teacher and I constantly say because I trust the person that I hired because he's a professional because she is a professional um because she's a content expert and so if she wants to supplement the curriculum with this text um once we've reviewed it like I don't have a problem with that and so I think you know In a lot of spaces, teachers aren't given that level of respect. And it seems so simple. Just hearing myself say it, it seems really simple. But it's the thing that I believe if you ask a lot of teachers, they'll say that that's what they really want. And so for me, um, creating a space where teachers want to come to work every day is the the ultimate goal. And I think that once I do that, um, they will then not eat the students. And so I read a book called Feed the Teachers so that they don't eat the students. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that if you feed your teachers, they won't eat the students. And every now and again, you know, you have to kind of run that back. But um, overall, I think it's just creating an atmosphere of respect um, and an atmosphere of love and support. Um, I was speaking with my boss just a while ago and just saying how so much emphasis is placed on student mental health. And I am finding myself making sure that I'm focusing on teacher mental health um, just as much as I am student mental health, because it is um, a real problem. And the mass exodus of teachers is real. And um, I've got to create that space where they want to be here. So same question to you, Danny. Um... How do you prepare yourself to lead leaders? It's. I think it first starts with leading yourself um, in any form of leadership. Um, my definition of leadership is is something that I've put together through a lot of other writers and authors that I really respect and leaders. But my definition of leadership is it's the decision to accept responsibility for the care of others. Um. Say it another way, Dr. King said, anybody can lead because anybody can serve. Uh, we tend to confuse leadership with position and title, but we all know that those things, position and title, don't make someone a leader. Um, if you want to lead, you have to learn to serve. Um, title and position is about finding the right place from which to lead, i.e. be a servant. So what's the best position? What's the best title that enables you to best lead? Is that in the classroom? Is that in the main office? Is that as a school administrator, a school leader, a city government official? You're asking again yourself the question, what's the best position from which I can serve others? Um, Simon Sinek, Sinek, 
the author, consultant, and TED Talk speaker says that the most important prerequisite to becoming a leader is the desire to become one. So if you have that desire to lead, um, then I think you're looking for the places, again, from which you can best serve others and care for others. My, again, going back to my definition, it's the decision. It's not passive. It doesn't just happen. You make a choice. Um, leadership is about making the decision to accept responsibility to care for others. And I think once you get into a position where you are caring for others, like anything, you have to recognize that it's a process of growth. You're absolutely going to fail. You're going to make wrong decisions. Sometimes with the best intentions, you're actually going to hurt people um, because of that's, that's the responsibility that comes with position and title. Um, and so I think going back to your original question of what does it take, I think it first starts with a commitment and willingness to lead yourself, hold yourself accountable, um, do the work within yourself to understand your why, um, what parts of that are redemptive, what parts of that are good, and what parts of that are actually centered on fear or centered on things that you need to let go of, whether that be for accolades, whether that be for recognition, whether that be for you know, ways to work out our own challenges that we all kind of face, insecurities and, and insecurities that we might have. Um, we've You've got to commit as a leader to do the work, the self-work of excavating those things so that you can be somebody who is safe for others to follow. Um, Kareth was talking about being a person that uh, teachers want to work for and teachers want to rally behind. Um, I think about the word integrity, and I like the architectural definition of integrity. Right? When a building is built, um, architects are assigned to assess a building's integrity, which means, is the building safe? Will the building do what it says it will do? Will it hold up under pressure? And I think that's what leadership is, is it's asking people asking the question of, are you safe? Can I trust you? Are you going to do what you say you will do? Um, and I think it's submitting yourself, quite frankly, to the scrutiny that comes with that, the accountability that comes with that, and knowing that you need to hold that for yourself in the highest regard and not succumb to what others may be saying or, or the trying to trying to please and meet the wills of um, never changing um, voices of critics that might come your way. How, um, thank you both so much for sharing that. Um, you both started out as classroom educators, and I'm curious what led you to pursue the kind of, quote, top job. Um, is it everything you imagined it would be? Is it totally different? <laughs> Kareth, you can get us started. Um, some days I wonder the same, the same question. <laughs> I wonder why did I choose to do this? Um, I, I had no intention of being in this role, quite honestly. Um, my plan was to break into administration as an assistant director or assistant principal or some type of coach until my son graduates from high school, which is in two years. He's a, a sophomore at University High School. Um, and then pursue the idea of school leadership. When I came to University Middle School, an opportunity presented itself within the first few months um, for me to take the plunge. And I did. And because I too, I'm a person of faith. I believe that this was an open door um, that God wanted me to take. And so I stepped into this space and um, I believe that it's been a good decision. There have been so many challenges and I've done so many things wrong, um, but I've learned from every single mistake and from every success. And it's been, again, very rewarding. Um, it's not something that I take lightly. Um, I remind myself and my teachers all the time that I lead with a teacher's heart. I know that I have to think much more broadly than a classroom teacher, but I, I keep my heart in the classroom so that when I'm making decisions, um, I'm thinking about the impact on the students as well as on the teacher. I will share um, that when I was placed in this role, 
Um, after my first year, I did call all of my previous administrators and offer them an apology <laughs> for being so judgmental and harsh um, about how they led their schools. Um, and they all just kind of laughed and said, welcome to the club. And so, you know, I've, I, I'm i a very reflective person. And so I, I just remember how I felt when I was in the classroom when certain decisions was, were made. And so I try to lead with transparency. Um, to the extent possible, but it's not something that I had planned to do. It it kind of um, happened with me walking through an open door, and I don't regret the decision. I love the work that I do every day. I know that I have so many areas uh, where I want to grow, but I think that I made the right decision for myself and for those who I lead and for just those in my life. Something really quick before we um, head into your answer on that, Danny. Um, Kareth, you mentioned how much you've learned from each of your failures throughout um, this learning process. I'm curious how you kind of instill that in the educators in your school as well as the scholars as you embrace failure rather than kind of being afraid of it and that fear of, oh, no, I'm going to mess up. It's going to be awful. It's like that's how you learn. You know, you keep going. Absolutely. We are a laboratory school. And so I use the analogy with my teachers all the time um, that when you are in a lab, the entire purpose of you being there is to try things um, and learn from the failures. If you're not failing, I believe genuinely that you're not trying. If you don't do something wrong every now and again, that means you are doing the same status quo, run of the mill, warmed over soup, whichever phrase you want to use. Um, and you're not trying anything new, anything innovative, anything different, um, those things automatically mean that at some point something is not going to go correctly. And that is when the real learning take place and takes place. And so I ask my teachers when they say, oh, I learned this thing. And I say, OK, well, what was the failure? What you know, what happened? What what led you to even assume that learning took place? And those are the types of conversations that I have. Um I've gotten to a place while I still don't like to fail. Um, I've I've learned to embrace the failure um, and certainly not to intentionally fail, but just not be afraid to take risks. Um, I have always been a risk taker. Um, and so I think that that serves me well in this role. And I try to instill that. I tell my teachers, hey, I'm going to be more frustrated if you don't try than if you try and fail. And I think re-enforcing um, that to them all the time in every faculty meeting, what did you do that was innovative this week? What did you try and fail this week? What did you learn this week um, as you reflect on how class went? Um, and so just asking those questions and creating that safe space, like I encourage them to do, create a safe space in your classroom where, where students are not afraid to fail. I try to create that whole school environment where teachers are not afraid to fail. Thank you so much, Kareth. Um, so, Danny, uh, I do have the same question for you, but it was obvious to me that you um, kind of intentionally were setting about going for that top job with the Building Excellent Schools Fellowship. Can you share a little bit about how that played in? to you kind of being a leader? <laughs> I think, you know, first and foremost, I want to say that teaching is absolutely a role of leadership. Um, the, the most important lessons I learned about being a leader, I learned when I was a teacher. Um, I learned about empathy. I learned about being the importance of true relationships. I also learned the importance of accountability and holding people to high demands. Um, I learned the importance of respect that is given through rigor. I learned the importance of preparation. Um, I learned that, you know, people, um, a form of respect we give to people is high expectations. And, uh, you know, I think um, similar to a great teacher and a great leader, I heard this recently, that two things happen when a good leader walks into a room. One is that everyone straightens up a little bit. And two is that everyone smiles. And I think a good teacher has that effect in a classroom. You can walk into, you know, my mentor teacher when I was in my uh, Kingsbury years showed me that. Um, I mean, you would hear her high heels coming down in the hallway and the kids would straighten up in their desks. 
but they loved her and they loved being in her classroom. And that was a picture to me of how you can love your kids and love the, and earn their love by um, being consistent, by being trustworthy. Um, she would tell me all the time, you know, Danny, you got to say what you mean and be what you say. Um, and those were, those were when I was a young teacher, just real moments where I was learning how to be a leader. Uh, now, I think going back to your question of what maybe pursued this position, I do think it is, you know, Kareth used the word calling. Um, I think it's something that goes back to why I entered education. Um, I got into education because I wanted to see change. And then going back to my earlier response about the definition of leadership, um, it was asking myself, where's the best place from which I can serve? And where's the best position from which I can enact change? And it was actually early in my MTR residency career that I caught a vision of leading a school one day and not only leading a school, but building a school. Um, and I was fortunate that in my, in my years, early years of teaching, I was a part of founding teams. You know, I was the inaugural class of the Memphis Teacher Residency. Then I was on the founding, uh, founding staff of Veritas College Prep. Then I was in the founding dean of students role at Cornerstone Preparatory. Then I was recruited to open another charter school in Nashville under a charter management organization called Rocket Ship Education that was expanding their schools from California all the way out here to Tennessee. Um, and I was on the founding team there. And in all those pursuits, I was intentionally following those because what I feel is that I was given a vision. I was given a calling that I was going to lead a school one day and I was going to found a school one day. So everything I did after that was about preparation. And I think I'm, I count myself incredibly fortunate that I was given that early in my career so that I could have time to prepare. Um, there were years where building and some schools would contact me and ask me to apply for the fellowship. And there were years I said, not yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm still, I still have more preparing to do. And then um, I think when the time became clear, um, I think like Kareth was saying, what I knew, honestly, and your question about failure is like, I knew I had more failing to do before I was ready to pursue the BES fellowship. I knew I had to fail a few more times because I had to learn how to get up from those failures. Um, because being a part of four different founding schools has taught me that there's, you know, there is a no perfect plan. Um, any perfect plan is going to get hit with a surprise and with an unexpected challenge and a change. And I think developing the resilience and knowing how to respond to those challenges comes with time and quite frankly, only comes after you experience lots of failure over and over and over again. Um, so I think to sum up my answer there, it was about being faithful to a calling that I felt that I received. And I think that calling ultimately was asking me the question of what's the position from which I can best lead, serve, have impact um, and see change happen. You've each achieved so much, learned so much, grown so much along this journey to your current roles, but I'm curious what each of you would give as advice to someone starting their career as an educator in Memphis. Those first few years are especially tough. Um, you know, what words of wisdom do you have for them? I'll start this one. Um, I, I think first and foremost, um, I would tell them that our kids are worth it. I would tell them not to forget they are children, that they are wonderful, they are magical, they have magic inside them. And as hard as some of them might be challenging you at times, as they might feel like they're literally fighting against you. What they're communicating is what they're trying to do is communicate with the language that they have at the time, what their needs are. And if you can learn to listen, and if you can learn to hear between the whatever might be coming out in front of you, whether that is a child who doesn't want to do what the assignment that you've given them, whether that's a child that is falling asleep in your class, whether that's a child that is resisting actively, actively trying to disrupt what appears to be actively trying to disrupt the lesson that you've spent so many hours preparing and you just think if they would just sit down and listen, then know that in those moments, there's a conversation happening. And if you can listen to what the child's trying to tell you, one, I promise it'll make you a better teacher, but it'll make you a better person. Um, I think we have the opportunity to work with students who have a lot to say. 
Um, here in Memphis, we have children who have seen and experienced a lot. Um, many of those experiences, no fault of their own. Many of those challenges that our children face, absolutely nothing they chose that put them in this position. But I think through them, you get to hear the history and you get to hear their stories. You get to hear their strength. Um, so the advice I would give is that it's, one, completely worth it. Two, um, learn to listen to what your students are trying to tell you. And then three, find your community. There's people who are doing this work with you. It can feel incredibly isolating, can feel incredibly lonely, especially if you're new and a new educator and a new teacher and a new school leader and you feel like everyone's judging you or you're failing every day. Um, there's a community. There's a community of people who see what you're doing, who are doing it with you. And I would challenge you to find that community. Um, and then finally, I would say, you know, the only way we grow is through um, challenge, uh, discomfort. When things are hard, it means you're growing. If things are easy, you're not, right? And so don't resist or fight against. Learn to embrace discomfort. Learn to embrace the feelings of failure because those are going to challenge you to grow. Kareth, um, you can answer that question too, but we have um, kind of a different question for you. It was, what advice would you give to a veteran educator to keep them energized and motivated? You know, my answer um, to the first question was going to be, outside of what Danny stated, um, I would add lead with love um, and, you know, a reminder to keep the students at the center of everything that you do. But my second piece of advice was going to be find a mentor um, who uh. has done this work for a while and find someone who's still in it and who still loves it and who still finds joy in the work that's being done every day. And so my advice to those individuals who have been here for a while, I genuinely believe that if they find a mentee, they can be reinvigorated. I think that they will see the their old selves. Um, they'll see that passion that they had when they first got into the field. They'll it'll be a reminder of why they do they what they do and why they chose this career path or why this career path chose them. Um, and so I would say stay connected to the younger generation of teachers, share your wisdom, share your knowledge, share your expect expertise. And I know that often um, especially with the way things change in education, um, strategies change, curriculum changes, so much changes. And a lot of times people who have done this work for a while feel ostracized and, and pushed to the side. But I believe that if they would connect with those who are just coming into um, the profession, to the field, um, they would sharpen each other because iron sharpens iron. And I believe that even though they've been doing this for a while, there's still some passion left in them. Um, and even when they feel it waning, uh, I think connecting with with some young energy uh, would be beneficial to them. And then know your own worth and value. I think what I've experienced with teachers who have been doing this for 15, the few who are left that have been doing this for 15, 20 years, um, they feel devalued um, because, you know, a lot of the teachers that we had when we were in school were just lecturers and it wasn't the hands-on and it wasn't all of this move around the classroom and put your students in groups and do all of these things. And I think sometimes when you're told so many times, you've got to change what you're doing, you have to change, you have to change, you have to change, you start to feel like what you offer doesn't have value. I think that there's still value. Um, in everything that educators do, anybody who's willing to come and stand in front of children every day, I think that there's value there. And so I, I would say connect with the younger generation and let their energy and passion rub off on you and reinvigorate you, remind you of why you got into this in the first place. Kara, thank you for that. To expand a little bit on uh, what you mentioned, so many teachers, especially the longer they spend in their careers, uh, feel devalued. What can we as a community do to remind educators of their value and to pour into that, whether or not we have children in the education system? 
I think support comes in so many different ways. And a lot of times um, members of the community would think that if I'm not inside of a school building, it's difficult for me to support educators. But I think that there's so many ways that we can support our schools, um, mentoring students, making sure that they have what they need when they walk into buildings every day, partnering with single parents, um, those who are in our community that are single parents, partnering with them. If you um, have resources, not always financial, but if you know of organizations that students could be a part of, providing opportunities for both students and teachers. If you are a business owner or if you are managing a company that where you can make those types of decisions, I think opportunities and resources for both educators and students would go a long way as far as support. I think teachers feel valued when people push into our schools and say, hey, we see you. To my earlier point about teachers just wanting to be respected, I think sometimes just hearing someone else say, you're doing a good job, will go so far. I think we hear all of the criticism. We hear all of the things that are going wrong. We hear about the failing schools and the F schools and the report card grades from the state. And we hear about the students who are in the classrooms doing things that like to be sensationalized on social media and the Internet. Every now and again, it feels good for someone outside of your boss or outside of the person who's doing a formal evaluation or outside of a parent that you helped to say, this school in my community is doing something right. This school in my community is doing great work. This school in my community may not be producing students who are in the 99th percentile, uh, but they're doing this thing that's really good. Um, and figuring out how you as an individual can support schools, there are just so many opportunities. And it doesn't always have to be financial. Money helps. Let me be really clear. <laughs> if you can write a check, write a check. Um, but for those who can't, help control the narrative, help shift the narrative. Not everything that's happening in schools is bad. Not everything that's happening in education is awful. There are really good things and really good programs and really great teachers who are doing amazing things, but they don't get the attention. And so I think that's like one of the most important ways that people can really support teachers and support schools, help control the narrative. New Memphis would wholeheartedly agree with you on that. And um, on behalf of New Memphis, I would just like to say that both you, Danny, and you, Kareth, are doing not only a good job, but an excellent job, which is why you were both named 2023 Educators of Excellence. So big, big congratulations to each of you on that award and honor. Um, I'm curious what you believe the attributes of an Educator of Excellence are and why you would recommend someone apply for New Memphis's Educator of Excellence Award. Danny, we can start with you. I think, you know, I, I get my education experience as far as teaching primarily in middle school. Um, I love middle schoolers. And, you know, I think if you love middle schoolers, you should work in middle school because most people don't like middle schoolers. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a tough age. You know, everybody's gone through that hard thing. I love the awkwardness of it. Anyway, I think that what makes a... Re so I'm going to speak from that point, but I think it does translate um, broadly to a great teacher. You know, what I say to um, people, um, what I'm looking for when I think about teachers, I believe they ask me what makes a great teacher. First, a strong back. Like, you've got to, just like my mentor said, say what you mean and mean what you say. You've got to be able to stand on your own two feet. You've got to be able to know, uh, like Kareth said, your own value that you bring to the space. Um, because here's the thing about middle schoolers, and I think, which is similar to the general public, I think middle schoolers are responding to their own insecurities. They're responding to their own fears of what they're seeing in the world and like what, trying to figure out what their world, what their place in the world is. And so they respond and they exert energy of nervousness because of those things. So what they're looking for is somebody who is secure in themselves, right? Somebody who knows who they are. And it doesn't matter if you're cool, if you're nerdy, if you're quirky, if you're what, if you're confident in yourself, that's attractive to students, right? Um, so I would say one, it's a strong back. Two, it's a soft heart. Um, I think, you know, if you just have rules and regulations and expectations, right, kids aren't going to, they're going to 
not follow you um, eventually. They want to know that you deeply care and that you're open, right? That you're open to listening to them and knowing their story and knowing what's going on behind the scenes, right? And then the third thing is it's a commitment to rigor um, that, you know what, like excellence is clear. Excellence is observable. Excellence is not negotiable. You can see when something is excellent and you can see when it's not. Um, I think it is the enemy, you know, Jim Collins and Good to Great says the enemy of great is good. Uh, I think sometimes we settle for things that are good. Uh, I think to your term of educator of excellence. Um, and I think the great teachers out there are ones who know that we can keep pushing. Uh, we can keep, we can keep um, improving. We can keep growing. We can keep learning. I can, I can continue to grow and my students can continue to grow. And I think great teachers are people who are hungry for growth themselves and helping illuminate that process of growth for their students. What about you, Kareth? I would only add that I believe an educator of excellence is resilient. And we've talked a lot about failures um, and learning from failures. I think that an educator of excellence is someone who can fall and get back up, who can bend but not break. Um, and someone who's a lifelong learner. You you have to be willing to be a student of the community that you want to help. And I believe that if you are a student, you're learning. And so I believe that educators of excellence study the landscape um, within their school communities, within their neighborhoods, and in within the city as a whole, and then even what's happening nationally and internationally. But if you are resilient and you are eager to learn, um, that joy of learning will become contagious and the people around you will want to know what you know. Um, I agree, Danny, that middle schoolers are very special people and it takes a special person to do that. And so if you are a middle school teacher, I believe you are already an educator of excellence. Um, But I would just say someone who's resilient um, and who wants to continue to learn themselves. So one of our last questions to each of you, kind of in one sentence, what makes you hopeful about the future of education in Memphis? And Kareth, we can start with you. There are people like Danny Song who are leading the work that is happening in the educational landscape of Memphis. There are people, and you said one sentence, but there are people who still care. And I think that as long as we have people who still care, there's always hope and I won't lose it. What about you, Danny? I think an evidence that people care is that there is unrest right now. And the unrest is uncomfortable, but it means change is coming. And so I am hopeful because the city of Memphis knows that we can do better for our kids. And we are demanding that we do better for our kids and our teachers. I would, let me say that really clearly, right? Like like the Carrot says all the time, this is a comma and conjunction compound sentence. With <laughs> we'll well, take it. We accept um, it. The, 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 you know, how we can care for our teachers needs to change as a community as well. Thank you both so much. So this is a quick little portion right at the end of our interview. We like to do what we call a lightning round. So we're going to make this a little easier and do ladies first. So, Kareth, you will go first in each of these, but it'll be just a quick response. Um, so first things first, mechanical pencil or regular pencil? Mechanical. What was your favorite subject as a student and as a teacher? English and English. What is your favorite cafeteria lunch? Hot wings. And what is your favorite thing about Memphis? The people who live here and the amazing music. Okay, Danny, you're up. Mechanical pencil or regular pencil? Regular pencil. Favorite subject as a teacher and as a student? Uh, English and math. Can't choose between them. Favorite cafeteria lunch? Square pizza. Ooh, the square pizza. And what is your favorite thing about Memphis? Um, honesty. Memphis is an honest city. 
Ooh, good answer. What a note to end on. (laughs) I know. I love it. Thank you so much for taking time from your extraordinarily busy days and an extraordinarily busy season for y'all as we try to, you know, close out the semester strong with everything. So thank you so much, Danny and Kareth, for joining us today. Thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. See you all. Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.